Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, October 10th. We have so much to catch up on from what was a jam-packed weekend of action across the professional tennis world, so much so that we're going to forego our usual introduction. We're ready to get right into all of the action, and joining me on today's podcast is a guest worthy of the occasion. Of course, you know him as a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast, host of Monday Match Analysis as well as 3A Tennis Show, but a man who will forever be known to me as both A, my eyebrowed nemesis, and B, a man who joined me on maybe the most delightful birthday dinner of my lifetime. It was him, the Rothman parents, a random group of people, but made for a delightful <laughs> time out on the L.A. scene. Of course, you recognize that laugh as the voice of my dear friend, a man who has tolerated all of my nonsense in L.A. over the past two and a half weeks, Gil Gross. Welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, shout out Katsuya. Shout out <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Gruskin. Uh, I, I love how much glee you took in in saying random. <laughs> you were just like a random group of people as if you like found me on the side. Anyway. <laughs> Well, here's what I have to say, because you are well aware of Maxwell Rothman, my yeah. dear friend, former doubles partner, co-host and co-creator of the Great Shot podcast. You have never met him. And for you to get to go to dinner with his parents, and yes, shout out to my parents for paying for a lovely birthday dinner. You're right. Random is just the word that comes to mind, but it was the right group of people. Let me just say, because I had foodies to guide me in the right direction in terms of what we were eating. And again, I, it, it was like I was introducing you to my parents. I was like, hey, Rothmans, this is Gil Gross. Are we dating? It's unclear, but at this point, we might just be. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Yeah. And shout out, of course, to my dear friend, Jenna Fink, who uh, called me tall in front of you, which was just the ultimate dagger I was looking <laughs> for. But uh, with that said, my friend, before we get into the action, you guys have been busy of late, whether it's Monday Match Analysis 3, a tennis show. Tell me what you've been up to. Uh, I've been up to um, a lot of TC stuff. I'm on uh, tomorrow morning. Join me uh, 10 a.m to well 10 a.m eastern time to uh to 1 p.m and uh then I'll, I'll be hopping on the t2 uh train a little bit later in the week and then back on tennis channel on on saturday monday match analysis is out deep breakdown on djokovic medvedev djokovic Pass, and then a uh, quick word on uh tiafo fritz and uh, there will be an episode of three coming out later this week yeah, absolutely. And we get to hear the highlights from that Monday match analysis here on today's shows. I want to talk about some similar subjects there. 
We're going to inside baseball for a second. I've been fortunate enough for the past two weeks to be working with you and the entire production crew over on T2. That said, this week, I kick things off 5 a.m. Pacific time, and then I, I hand things off no longer to you, but to our dear friend Jan Michael Gamble. This is the first time in my life where sitting in that booth, because handing things off to you, I'm like, you know, whatever. It's not that. Yeah, like, I understand our styles are different, of course, but it's the same concept of human. To hand things off to Jan Michael Gamble, I'm like, what does the production crew think? It's like 759, <laughs> I'm doing my thing. And then 802, Jan Michael rolls, and I'm like, what a transition. Yeah, I mean, you give up, you know, and, and let's be clear, this is all muscle we're talking, but you give up, you know, about <laughs> 75 pounds. Yeah. Um, y- you're right. Uh, it's a, it's a quite the twist going on this week with that handoff. There's true, no doubt about it. True story. I deodorize every 30 minutes because I'm like, he cannot have it smell bad in here when he walks in. I'm like, I just can't present that sort of scene for Jan Michael Gamble. So I'm trying to keep things fresh in the broadcast. You could have done that for me too. No, you, you I, but, yeah, yeah, no, I was like, you know what? I, I apologize, Gil. I've drank a lot of coffee this morning. And so, you know, for you, I'll let that fly. But for Jan, Mike, I run a clean operation. But obviously you allude to the fact we've both been on T2. We had a front row seat to all of last week's action on the ATP and WTA Tour. And this is how you know I'm excited for today's podcast, which, of course, is brought to you by our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. I actually wrote an outline. And I sent that outline to you beforehand. I have a list of questions that I want to go through, try to organize what was, again, a chaotic, jam-packed, extraordinary weekend of tennis on the ATP and WTA tours. We're going to hop around a little bit. I may change up the order. I sent you those questions in, but as the host of Monday Match Analysis, where you talked about Novak Djokovic's two victories, as the host of Three A Tennis Show, where you focus on the day-in, day-out progress of Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and RIP to Roger Federer, it's going to be amazing to see who sneaks into that third big three slot there. Um, the question I want to start today's podcast with Is Novak Djokovic's best still better than anyone else on hard courts? Because as you alluded to, Novak Djokovic captures another title over the past weekend in Astana, of course, rebranded from Nur Sultan. And you look for Novak Djokovic now, it's back-to-back titles for him. He wins in Tel Aviv, wins in Astana, drops just one set in his 10 victories, excuse me, nine victories between those two events. You look for Novak Djokovic now here in this 2022 season, 33-6 and overall in the year. It's just another year where he cranks out an 85% win percentage, which by the way, is above his career average of 83.4. You look at the numbers, 87.1% hold percentage, 1.2% above his career average. 28.7% break percentage, which is below the 32.1 mark, which is just laughably exceptional for his career average. For the record, as of right now, the average top 50 player break served 23.2% of the time. For his career, Novak Djokovic is 9% better than that. Just absolutely ridiculous from a number standpoint. That said, with this run of titles over the past couple of weeks, Novak Djokovic now the only player in the top 50 to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Now, I know I just threw a ton of numbers at you and our listeners. So again, I get back to the big picture. The numbers seem to indicate 
this Novak Djokovic is as good as any iteration. Maybe not quite as good, but is still closer to the prime of his career than the beginning of his career. And so I ask you again, Gil Gross, is Novak Djokovic's best still better than anyone else? Let's start on hard courts. Probably. Uh, the problem <laughs> is the problem is with this year. Yeah, you you had to give him an incomplete grade. Like Amy, my my co-host on three, uh, Amy Lundy, uh, said, you know, last week after Tel Aviv that Novak's the best player in the world. And my response to that is, how are we supposed to know that? His match against Medvedev in this semifinal in Astana was the first match against a top 10 player that Djokovic has played off clay all season long. It took him until October to play a top 10 player off of a clay court. So that was how I was kind of looking at it. It's like, how how are we supposed to know how good he really is? Because, you know, we know how weird grass has been the last couple of years. And uh, look, obviously, Kyrgios is a top 10 player on grass. He beat Kyrgios in the Wimbledon final. I just I have to throw that in there. Yeah. Uh, but he just we just didn't have the matches and the sample size for Novak to actually go out there and, and prove to us that he's the best player in the world. Has he done that now? I'm close to being there. I, I'm definitely close to being there. Um, you know, but let's also not act like. Daniil Medvedev didn't win the first set. Have a volley at five all yeah, to to nets. get a match point. Yeah, yeah, that he that he put in the net. Uh, let's not act like you know he didn't get injured in that tiebreak. Have to completely change his tactics. Now that could have been dangerous, but I digress. Uh, Novak is unbelievable. That's the bottom line. He's still very much elite. If he's not the best in the world, he's one, one thing is clear. Yeah, exactly. One thing is clear. He nobody's better than him. Yeah. Um, Right, he's at least grouped in with the best players in the world, and uh, you know he absolutely demolished everyone this week, and it was eye popping um, in Astana. Um, question: First serve points one percentage. That's the stat that is jumping out to me for Novak this year. That seems to be where he has taken a bigger leap than anywhere else. Is that correct? So. I'm going to answer that question in a second, but as you answered my question so beautifully, I had the chance to look up a stat that you referred to, which is this lack of top 20 matches for Novak Djokovic. Here are the comparable seasons in terms of top 20 wins for Novak this season. And to this point of the year, again, Novak's played a limited schedule. He's 12-4 and against top 20 opponents this season. Comparable years. 2019, he goes 13-7. and against the top 20. 2017, a year where he was primarily injured, he goes 6-7 and seven against the top 20. Then you have to go all the way back to 2010, where he was 13-12. and 12. And 2010 was the last year before Novak really became Novak. That 2011 breakout campaign, was it 42 straight wins before Federer shook his finger at him? Whatever that number was. You know, again, 17, he's injured. 2010 is before Novak starts his prime. I'd have to go look up the context of that 2019 season. I wish I remember it better than I did. Perhaps you do, but you're absolutely right. 
we just haven't seen Novak outside of early Wimbledon play those biggest matches against the biggest opponents. Yeah, Rome was the other example I can think of where he beats FAA, Rude, Tsitsipas on his way to that title. Certainly, he played Alcaraz in Madrid, even though he lost that match. But you're absolutely right. To watch him not only beat everyone the way he beat them so efficiently. I mean, all due respect uh, to uh, Roman Sefillin, the Russian who had a great week in Tel Aviv. Novak could have won that match 0-0 if he wanted to. You could just tell. In set number one, it was very clear. I got this. It's over. I'm fit. You're not beating me. You're not getting a ball by me. And over the course of the past two weeks, that's been the first thing that jumped out. I'm rounding here. I'm going full circle. I'm going to get to your first serve question. The number one thing is the fitness. And last week, our friend Nate Walrath from Tennis Point came on this show and said Novak looked a little bit bigger than usual, looked a little bit physically stronger coming into this two-week run. This is a very weird observation. He took his shirt off after the first set against Tsitsipas, and it was noticeable. I was like, wait a second. I have seen your skinny torso shirtless numerous times over the years. Usually that vein's not popping out, and it kind of was. He looked 5 to 10 pounds, maybe not 10, closer to 5, but he looked a little bit thicker. And to your point about the first serve win percentage, Novak Djokovic this year winning 76.3% of his first serve points. That's his second highest number of his career, and he's been over 76% in three of the last four seasons. It's the only time he's been over 76% in his career. Yes, to go full circle, it's not only the fitness, it's the fact that in Astana, he was the he was one of the few players who it just felt easy for him to go about his typical first shot aggression, typical patterns that he likes to set up in his service games uh, with ease. And man, did Daniil Medvedev play well in Astana. Like, holy crap. If we're taking anything away from this experience, Djokovic is one, but one B is... If this is, you know, Daniil Medvedev looked back. That's the Daniil Medvedev we're accustomed to seeing at this point of the calendar. Hopefully the injury isn't too significant. But the separating factor between that Medvedev match down the home stretch, between the Tsitsipas match, certainly in the final, where you look for Novak dominant on serve in that match against Tsitsipas, didn't face a break point throughout the course Lost of the match. Lost six points total. Yeah, just, yes. So, I mean, the, we're playing the numbers a bit. But it's an eye test thing as well. And I think more than anything beyond the serve being exceptional, it's that he just hits every spot he wants to hit. And that next forehand is always so accurate. Um, And obviously he's taking the ball early. Um, So yeah, he's backing it up incredibly well also. And and it's a mindset thing. Like he's ventured into that serve plus one mentality where I know I'm getting an attackable ball off of the return of serve and I'm going to punish it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And he's hitting the backhand as well as ever. Uh, he's moving forward as comfortably as ever. He was hitting overheads against Daniil Medvedev because he had to take advantage of the space that was being offered to him. You know, again, and then the match against Tsitsipas. I thought Tsitsipas played really well this week. I thought he found his forehand so easily. Obviously, the slow, high bounce, beneficial to his backhand, which he was swinging through comfortably. He tracked down everything he was looking for. And the weight of his on-the-run cross-court forehand, you know, lesser men struggle to deal with it. 
But Novak Djokovic is not lesser men. Novak Djokovic exists on a different plane. And that's why, again, to me, it's the physicality. Like 35 years old, it's Medvedev who breaks down. 26, not 35-year-old Novak Djokovic. And I do wonder big picture— does he try to, you know, again, part of it's going to be out of his control. Vax, if he's not going to get vaccinated, I don't know what he is or isn't going to be allowed to play. But, like, if this is what 40 matches of, if this is Novak Djokovic, age 35, I play 40 matches, I can sustain my prime from start to finish. I mean, is there three years left of this? Four years left of this? Because this seems like a very replicable workload results on court sort of ratio for him. Yes. I mean, the reality is about Djokovic physically is that we're just not really seeing much of a dip whatsoever. Um, I I think with Nadal, we've seen that dip. He's gotten better in certain other in other areas. He's adapted and he's been able to win in spite of that dip with Djokovic. It's more like, well, where's the dip? He's still moving great. The, The one thing that I think has been present is he doesn't want to grind with Daniil. He doesn't want to get into physical rallies. So the movement, the court coverage, the flexibility, that incredible Gumby-like defense that you know is so valuable on the return of serve as well, that is all still there. Does he want to play back-to-back 30-ball rallies like he did in 2011? No, I think that's the part that's gone. And you see with the way he plays Medvedev tactically now, very proactive, very aggressive. He he really wants to uh, constantly change patterns. Not a lot of trading cross court, you know, drop shots coming forward. So I want to ask you a question on that. I, this is a Medvedev question. The balls on Medvedev to be like, you know what? I don't think you can beat me backhand cross court anymore. Am I imagining that or do you no. see that as well? Because I think that's his tactic. No, dude, he was hitting his forehand down the line like every time. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Medvedev, so I think here was the mentality here. Daniil knew Novak wanted to create offense kind of desperately. He didn't want the physical war. Daniil goes, oh, you don't want the physical war? Well, then you're going to have to generate with your backhand. Because I I know from behind the baseline, Djokovic can – can hit through Medvedev on his forehand side. Sure. Can you drive backhands past me from behind the baseline on your backhand? Even Novak can't. It, it's just not quite big enough um, on this kind of surface. So that's why you see Djokovic, he has to push him back with the drive and then hit the drop shot. And that's like what he has to do. So I think Medvedev realized if you know you don't want this to be physical, I want this to be physical. And the best way for me to make it physical is to make you hit backhands. Yeah, it was exceptional tennis. The epitome of phys- of physicality. It reminds me of those early Djokovic-Murray matches 2011 through 2016 when they were both at the peak of their powers. And that, to me, is my favorite rivalry because the physicality of those two. I know some people would say, you know, all the points look the same. I would completely disagree with that assessment. I think every point looked a little bit different. Now, every point ultimately went 40 balls, but... If you don't like that, you're probably not listening to a daily podcast on all things tennis. <laughs> and so you look for Novak Djokovic now again here in 2022, 33 and 6 overall. He's reached five finals, four titles. I mean, again, the only player analytically to rank top 10. That's how you say that in English in both hold and break percentage this season. 
And yet, okay, if he, he won Wimbledon, if he wins the year-end championships, but, you know, again, is this a successful season for Novak Djokovic? As you look back at it, certainly he was that good. How do you think he views it? No, it wasn't a successful season. It was a lost season. That's crazy to say, but make the case because I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, it's about big titles, and, and he won Wimbledon, and 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 that's it. Um, now I, I don't think, I don't think Masters don't matter. I think they do matter. Even those obviously are lacking. He won Rome. Is that it? Yeah, that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those well, matter, Tel Aviv but, was a master, but just to our people. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I, I just don't. Um, I don't think that's enough for it to be. I, I look the win percentage; it's encouraging, but it's kind of it felt like a, it felt like a, almost like a holding pattern for Djokovic. That's what it kind of reminded me of. It's like he's kind of sitting out in 2022 a little bit somewhat uh that Wimbledon title though I will say was so important that you can't really minimize it as much as maybe I just did um because he really did need that and look every major title is so precious at this point uh at at the end of the day like in order for it to have been a another successful Djokovic season he probably would have needed to win that quarterfinal against Nadal in Paris but it's definitely not a season that he would want to repeat in 2023. And for that reason, I can't say it was successful. I think holding patterns an excellent way to describe things. Now, if he beats Alcaraz down the home stretch of the season in a Paris significant situation or a year on final significant situation, we can rehab this discussion because yeah. I think there's definitely some meat left on the bone, but not a ton. And again, holding patterns, a good way to look at things. Final question for you. We'll move on to question two here um, in our outline. Uh, last thought as it pertains to Astana. Who has had the better year relative to their expectations? Stefano Tsitsipas or Andre Rublev? Now, the reason I ask this question, obviously the two play a really fun semifinal match. It's the 11th matchup in the career between the two of them. Tsitsipas now a 6-5 lead overall. This is a really fun rivalry between two players who aren't exactly dissimilar out on court in the things that they do. Both obviously want to establish themselves with the serve, with the forehand. Now, again, that's the foundation. You look beyond that, there's a lot of differences in the two. I was looking, you know what's sad is I was thinking, what's the word, the opposite of similarities? And it took me a second in my head to be like, oh, duh, differences. So shout out to that 4 a.m. grind. (laughs) You know, Tsitsipas has clinched his spot. In the year-end finals, Rublev currently leads uh, eighth place. Felix Ogier Aliasim by just about 400 points. Rublev's probably going to get in to that final eight field. That said, you know, again, relative to season expectations, I don't know. Kind of feel like both guys, dare I say, left a little meat on the bone. That it wasn't exactly a massive leap forward for either guy. So again, I ask you the question, Gilgros, before we get into the stats even, who has had the better season relative to expectations? Tsitsipas or Rublev? Look, you you made it a tough question. It's not not an easy question. But so, I mean, look, I think you're right in the premise. So what was the goal for Rublev coming into the year? In, In my opinion, it was win a big title you know, win and 
play well outside of like February shouldn't be your best month. Yeah. And neither should October. Like these are the least important months in the calendar. I'm sorry, but there has to be some least important months. Mm-hmm. And it's February and October. It's when you go to the indoor hard courts after the Australian Open. And it's when you go to the indoor hard courts after the US Open. And Rublev just, he makes those parts of the season his hunting ground. Yes, he wins a 500 in Dubai, so it's not all 250s, but I think Rublev coming into the year, you know, there was no questions about his ability to win consistently on tour, uh, no questions about his ability to be a top eight player. He's done all that. The question is, are you going to win a, a Masters 1000? Are you going to make a, a good run, make a major semifinal, which he, he hasn't done yet. He's 0-5 in quarters. By the way, he's had chances to win these quarterfinals. He's technically, on paper, had good draws. Chilich in Paris and Tiafo at the U.S. Open. Um, so that was Rublev. Then you look to Tsitsipas. Well, and- well let, let's go Rublev first because okay. I, I do want to add to that. You look for Andre sure. Rublev, 43-16 overall this season in terms of total quarterfinals made on the year. And the all these stats I have are based on last week's numbers, so I'll try to adjust here on the fly. You know, you look for Andre Rublev via the Tennis Abstract Stats Leaderboard, and as always, shout out to our dear friend Jeff Sackman, who makes it so easy to look all these things up. Andre Rublev, uh, one of just one, two, three, four, five, six players with double-digit quarterfinals on the year. His 11 quarterfinals tied for third with Kasper Ruud. He trails just Stefano Tsitsipas and Felix. You look in terms of total semifinals. Rublev tied for second with eight. Uh, he's tied with four other players. They all trail Tsitsipas in terms of total finals on the year. Uh, Rublev's made three now. That's still tied for a top 10 number on the ATP Tour this season. Again, superficially All those things sound good. He's also one of the 12 guys right now who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now, he's not top 10 in either hold percentage or break percentage. There's not an elite category for Andre Rublev this season, but it's another year where he's just pretty good at everything from a statistical standpoint. That said, as you dive into it, to your point, quarterfinals U.S. Open, quarterfinals Roland Garros, and yet you would probably say two disappointing losses to Chilich and Tiafo, respectively. You look for him against top 20 opponents this season, six and six. It's fine. You know, it's not anything yeah. to write home about three and three against the top 10, including the win over Djokovic in Belgrade, which some people hold in higher regards than I do. He did crush Nori at the U.S. Open, which felt like a little tier two versus tier three battle where Rublev's like, yeah, it's cute. You've had this great year, but when push comes to shove, my weapons are better. Um, that said, like if your signature victory, I don't care if it's against Novak Djokovic. If your signature victory happens at a 250 in a given season, like it can only be so great, right? It's not great. It's not great. Yeah, All I right, mean, so let's go to let's go to TT Pass. Yeah, I was gonna say. So that's that's just establishing the framework. I appreciate yeah. it for Andre Rublev. Now, give me the case for TT Pass. Um, so TT Pass, I think you come into the year and the expectations are are higher than Rublev's, which is why you put relative to expectation in the question. Um, I, I guess for him. It was twofold, you know, first off, potentially win a major. I think that was, you know, part of in, in the goals, in the goals. And I think for Rublev, that wasn't even a goal. Uh, for Tsitsipas, it was. And then I, I think it was, you know, improve on quick courts, uh, 
play well on hard courts, play well potentially on grass. Uh, neither of those things happened. Well, uh, counter, he did win a title on a grass court, I, which mini picture, true. it's a mini, it's a micro victory. Yeah, a week before Wimbledon, right? Yes. Um, in, in Mallorca. Yeah. Uh, okay, good point. The hard court stuff is weird because all of his mm. success is coming indoors. Uh, indoor hard court has been fine. Outdoor hard court has been pretty bad. Uh, but he did make the final in Cincinnati. That's part of the issue for Tsitsipas has been the finals, um, where he's lost now eight finals in a row at the 500 level, and he hasn't won a, a final on hard court um, in like two years since 2020. Um, he hasn't. He still hasn't won a title on outdoor hardcore in his career, which is it's slightly alarming, just because there are so many events on on outdoor hardcore. But uh, with that said, I think Tsitsipas has had more moments than Rublev. Um, beating Medvedev in that Cincinnati semifinal, a matchup nightmare. Um, comes in with probably the best game plan he's ever came in with against Medvedev. Uh, attacks the net beautifully. Really, really big win there. Australian Open, he is the underdog against Yannick Sinner in that quarterfinal. We've discussed that match a lot. Uh, absolutely smokes him and makes a surprising Australian Open quarterfinal coming straight off of elbow surgery. Um, so, oh, and then the Monte Carlo title, where once again he wins Monte Carlo. It's been a place that has has treated him very, very well. He adds another Masters to his resume, um, and um, he beats... No, it was Rublev in 2021 that, that he beat in the final. Um, this year, uh, Monte Carlo? He beat Zverev. In no, the Davidovich Fokina. Yeah, the big well, one was Zverev in the semis. Yeah, and, and he crushed Zverev in the semis. Four that was two, not a correct. close match. Right. Yes. So he's had more moments. I think he had a better year relative to expectations than Rublev. Well, grass court, here's who the losses were to. Murray, Kyrgios, Kyrgios. That's a good grass court season. I do think, again, from that standpoint of did he progress this season at anything, Stefano Tsitsipas finally showed some signs of life as a player on grass courts moving forward. And I think we both think, backhand return aside, every other foundational piece to Stefano Tsitsipas screams, I am going to be good on grass courts moving forward. The argument against Tsitsipas is it's just like, we all know what everyone's going to do to target you now. Everyone knows what the game plan is. You're going to be seeing serves to that backhand corner. You're going to see that ad side peppered. And by the way, that's nothing Tsitsipas hasn't seen since he was probably seven years old and switched to the one-handed backhand. It's that for the second consecutive season, it felt like in the biggest moments, in particular against Kyrgios at Wimbledon. Uh, I mean, the first round match against Galan was just bad, but structurally, what does Daniel Galan love to do? Hit the inside out forehand. It gave CT Pass fits in that U.S. Open first round. Has he maximized the other parts of the game where you're less concerned about that weakness moving forward? Because again, it just feels like you know, Tsitsipas is not one of those guys who's top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now, his serving is elite. He's a top five hold percentage guy on the ATP tour, and it's not the first year we've seen him in that conversation. You know, did he... I guess it, it comes down to degrees of improvement, right? For me, this we've seen this season from Rublev to your... I, like, I feel like I saw this in 2021. I saw this at the end of 2020. I think for him at the yeah. slams to make two more quarterfinals, it's good, but we've seen Rublev make a final eight. I need to see him in a final four. I need to see him in a final two. 
and why I think Tsitsipas had the better season relative to expectations, and then I want to give you the final word on this, is that it does feel like at the end of this year, yeah, the floor's still a little lower, but there were moments where you saw, okay, Tsitsipas' best is still in that conversation of that best can beat anyone on the right day. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, but that that's something that I think we could have we Set could have the year we could have yeah we could have known that right sure um look i i guess the the best argument for rublev is that he's actually had less shockingly bad moments yeah right so the, the scholars galan, have argued the galan <laughs> losses the galan loss was uh one of was that the most surprising first round loss at a major all year by a top player it's got to be was that even his most surprising loss? Though the loss to Runa at Roland Garros might have been more surprising, just the way he lost that Runa match. But you're no, right, first I, round. I don't agree. Okay, first round against Daniel Galan. I mean, Runa Runa's going to be a player who yeah. does a lot in his Fair. career and has already done quite a bit. Like here's a guy who's won a title. What you know? What is Galan? You can't yeah. lose to Galan if you're Tsitsipas there. Yeah, no, that's um, fair. I'm trying to think now early round. For, I'm like first round <laughs> match. I'm like, what happened in the Roland Garros first round? I don't freaking know. Um, yeah, it's it a good hard. argument. And it's a very good argument. I mean, maybe like there's definitely a WTA loss from the year that is in the conversation. But yeah, I think on the ATP Halep side. this year against uh, Sneaker. Yeah, exactly. That was the one where I was going to say that's probably the one that pops to mind. But like Tsitsipas is in that conversation, which isn't good. Yeah. Uh, the last thing that I think should be said about Tsitsipas, I think the one area, because you're talking about his backhand and how everybody knows, and, and you're right, that's been a thing for his whole career yeah. and probably since he was 10 years old. The one area that's had me scratching my head is I used to really be somewhat high on his mental game. I used to think he always competed really well. Uh, I know he wants it bad. He had that, you know, burning desire to be great or still has that burning desire to be great. Uh, just an ultra competitive guy, which is a good thing. This is the first season where I've seen a couple of matches where he's been pretty uh, fragile and soft, I would say mentally. Uh, w one of the examples is that Chorich final in Cincinnati where um, he, he gets his serve broken twice and on the following return games, both times, there are balls that he doesn't run after where he could have gotten there. Um, and then I thought there was some some effort issues at times against Djokovic too. Or not effort issues, but you know, both times he got his serve broken. They were they were really horrendous games. Yeah. And the reason I think they were horrendous games is because he played well on the first point and lost it in heartbreaking fashion. So that's one of the things that I talked about on Monday Match Analysis. Uh, in the first set, they played the longest rally of the match. Tsitsipas lost it um, for a drop shot that I think he could have went after, and he didn't. Um, but it was a really crushing way to lose the first point, and then he made three forehand errors. In the second set, he... Um, he has basically three approach shot forehands mm -hmm. and Djokovic guessed the right way uh, twice and he was guessing the right way a third time and Tsitsipas hit it in the net. And it was like, are you kidding me? I lost that point. Then he made a couple forehand errors. So both times it's like, you gotta kind of turn the page and be a little bit more mentally resilient. And I feel like that's kind of a new thing for Tsitsipas that he's been a little fragile mentally. 
it's a fair counter to I just think people are getting this under his skin now more than they used to. And I know that's a non-tangible, non-quantifiable thing, but the our the counter argument would be did you see the ending of the Rublev match? Like how locked Yeah, it competed in really well. Yeah, and I, I think agree. that's a match that he knows extraordinarily well. 2023 is a big season for Tsitsipas. I don't think there's any if, ands, or buts about that, especially with guys like another guy you would put in this conversation. Coming into the year, if I asked you, who are you more confident about over the next decade, Tsitsipas or Kasparud? I think it would have been a unanimous Tsitsipas, no matter who you asked that question to. You're right. Do you say that at the end of 2022? No. Not and really. that's why I, I'm not sure if that's a great thing relative to the expectations. Again, that some guys have passed him here this season, you know, guys you didn't think would be passing him. And yeah, some of that's credit to Casper Rude, but just it's just a thought. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thought to carry, in my opinion, into the offseason. Last thought on this more broadly before we move on. And I tease this to you before we started the show. ELO ratings now updated for our dear friends at Tennis Abstract. We don't care about the ATP rankings. We're all about the ELOs here at CR. Yearly ELO ratings are pro- – well, will this give you a hint for what the big picture is? Yearly ELO ratings, Djokovic 1, Nadal 2, Zverev 3, Kyrgios 4, Alcaraz 5, Berrettini 6. I don't know how he snuck in. Sinner 7, Medvedev 8, Tsitsipas 9, Fritz 10. For what it's worth, Rude is 12. I actually don't hate – those yearly ELO ratings, they're a little bit rapid. Rude should be up a little bit higher, but I don't I don't hate them. That said, overall ELO ratings, Gil Gross, can you guess the top five? Overall ELO, not yearly, overall ELO. So that that um Yearly is just 2022 specific results. Yeah, and, and overall is it's more biased towards recency, right? Overall is still a little bit more biased towards recency, correct? But it's it's a it still factors in thing like what's your peak elo okay um i think and here's i should let all of you listeners know gil pretty confidently guessed novak djokovic before the show started i shot him down that's why he's hesitating he's wondering am i tricking him yeah am I trying to pull a fast one Look, Alcaraz has been so good against top players this year that I'm going with him. He is number two. Number two on the overall ELO. Again, I am shocked at who's number one. (laughs) It kind of validates everything I thought about this player prior to how the past 24 months have unfolded about him off the court. There's my hint for you. Um, But this player is now number one. It's Zverev. Yeah, as you know me well. I don't Um, get it. I don't get it. I stare at these numbers more than any human not named Jeff Sackman. Jeff, you owe us an explanation. I think the ELO is malfunctioning because oh. I I like I just don't. It's because across the it's because his hard court ELO, he's been pretty solid on hard courts this year as well as clay courts, and so you know grass court is so negligible. Only Djokovic's grass court ELO and I guess Berrettini really help them. Um, it's that he's been so solid on both surfaces, which again doesn't really compute I, I don't know I don't uh, this is why I had to bring it up I was like yeah. what I, I'm stuck I guess like Elo doesn't care that he hasn't played I think there's an Alex factor do you think Jeff gave me some points he's like who does Gruskin like let's give him a little love well we've been talking about this for a while that we need to be factored into Elo 
There should be an AGGG little factor where it's like a 0.1% skew, 0.0012% skewing, where it's just like our ratings, our top 100 are factored in as well. Yeah, like I Jeff should ask us every week what and, our top 100 is. And here's the thing. If you think I wouldn't fill that out every single week and relish <laughs> in changing my 78th ranked player from week to week, I mean, come on, Jeff. That's a layup right there for you. And tweet at him, listeners, if you agree with that assessment. All right, Zverev 1, Alcaraz 2. Three, four, five. Go quickly. Um, three, four, five. I'm gonna go. Um, Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas ninth. Okay. It's kind of surprised me. He has a lot of wins. It's true. Well, okay. Well, Djokovic is in there. Three. Okay. And then who won two majors this year? Nadal. That still matters. He's four. Yeah. Five is the fascinating one, and I think we would actually both agree with this fifth player. Um, you had a fantastic tweet about a lingering issue of his. Sinner, Yannick Sinner, fifth. That's wow. I actually agree. I think I test wise. I mean, I'm gonna look. I don't support the human being, but I really do think Zverev was gonna beat Nadal in the French Open semifinals this year. And obviously, Rafa wins the freaking match, but Zverev was the better player throughout the course of that match. Yep. Like, if you're asking me eye test, who are the five players who have reached the highest level? Those are the five. And Medvedev this past week in Astana. Yeah, but it's it's just one week. So yeah, uh, I would agree. Yeah. And again, I can't argue. Yeah, it's not an endorsement of the human being, man. Just a statement of facts of what we saw. All right. Enough ATP. We're going to put that to the side for a little bit. I want to get back to Tokyo. Let's move over to Ostrava, which prior to San Diego this week was, in my opinion, pound for pound, player for player, the single strongest draw we have seen on the WTA Tour Wasn't this season. Dubai stronger? Dubai's Dubai always better. in the mix. Dubai is always so good. I mean, all both of those Middle East events, Doha and Dubai, are always loaded. Right. I just think given the point of the season to have this many top players across the board in Ostrava speaks to A, how open the race is for the year-end finals, and B, um, was it obviously led to extraordinarily high levels of tennis over the course of the past weekend and you know, ultimately in the end. It's the return of Barbara Krachikova. As you look, the 26-year-old earns her what? I want to say 10th straight victory, ultimately a 5-7-7-6-6-3 victory over Iga in the final. She beat Rabakina in three sets in the semifinals as well and wins over Kontave, Bencic, Haddad, Maya, and Tallinn the week prior. Look, we all know Barbara Krachikova, what her highest level looks like. She won a Grand Slam title and went on a similar 12-plus match win streak last year on her way to that French Open title. You know, big thing on the doubles court this year, she completed the bazooka slam where not only, you know, that's a made-up term, patent pending, um, where she's not only won every major in in pro doubles with Katerina Sinyakova. They've won the year-end championships. They've won the gold medal. I believe they also won three of four junior slams. That's why it's the bazooka slam because uh, when you're that good in the juniors as well, put them in the Hall of Fame. That said, the singles performance had struggled up to this point, but now... I mean, when I watch Krachikova play, tier two, like tier one, where is she right now for you, ecosystem-wise, on the WTA Tour? Well, tier one only has one player in it. It's Ega, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think there's, the, you can't. Is this an could, ELO thing where it's like Sabalenka is going to be number one because of the Gruskin Gill factor, <laughs> and it's like you pull the fast one on me? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's indisputable, and that that's why 
It's indisputable. I, I don't think in good faith you can put someone in Iga's tier. Mm-hmm. So tier one is Iga Sviantek. Yeah, Krejcikov is definitely in tier two. Um, it didn't make much sense to me what was happening. Like, I'd be lying to you if I said that I didn't start to get a little bit worried about Krejcikova. Like, oh, it was 2021, just a weird thing that happened. Yes, that, that crept into my thought process. But it was, uh, I didn't want to believe that. It didn't make any sense to me because what we saw last year was so not a one tournament thing. It was so not that. Uh, You know, obviously she won the title before the French Open and um, that was in... That was in Strasbourg, and then she wins Roland Garros, and then she goes to Wimbledon and beats everybody except Ash Barty, who goes on to win, and then she goes on to the hard courts and wins Prague, which wasn't a very great field, but that's okay. Then she goes to Tokyo, beats everyone except Belinda Bencic, who wins the gold medal. Then she goes to Cincinnati, beats everyone except Barty, who wins Cincinnati, goes to the U.S. Open, loses in the quarters to Sabalenka, and it was a health-related thing where she looked like she was potentially going to pass out against Muguruza and was dead for that match against Sabalenka. And then and then totally gassed out at the end of 2021. Uh, had nothing left and went on a losing streak. Then she made the Australian Open quarters to start the year. So I apologize to go through an entire oral history of Barbora <laughs> Krejcikova. No, first of all, for you to apologize for that to my listeners of all people, <laughs> come on. They're like, yeah, is it Monday? That makes sense. <laughs> uh the point is of that whole thing she wasn't just good for two weeks she was good for an entire half season essentially or at least the most you know the juice of the summer the meat of the summer um so it didn't make any sense that Krejcikova would have an elbow injury come back and just not be very good anymore so the fact that she's come back back to back titles um to Lynn Ostrava which is you know, there's an added element of impressiveness based on the fact that she had the fitness to do that, uh, given her fitness being something that seemed to have held her back for much of this season. It makes a lot of sense. It's like, thank you. Welcome back. That's what I thought. Yeah. Very well said. Um, she is one of the nine players, even through her struggles going into last week, was one of the nine players who ranked top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now she's one of just five players to rank top 20 in both of those categories on the WTA Tour. And, you know, for Iga back into, Iga is the only player who ranks top 10 in both hold and break percentage, a stat we don't talk about enough, but I will continue to just reiterate over and over and over again because it's laughable. Iga's breaking serve over 50% of the time this year, and she's actually dipped down to 50.9%, but again, the only player I've ever seen over 50 who finished a season in the top 50, I'm not talking about the players who, all due respect, are playing at the ITF level because it's a different ball game. The only player I've seen finish over top 50 is Simona Halep. And Simona Halep is a generational returner. Iga Sviantek, generational returner. And yet, on these, I feel like these courts are dead. You know, I loved my WTA experience in Cleveland. I really enjoyed watching Ostrava. But these makeshift indoor hard courts, the ball just stays low. And, it, and it, it quickly moves through the court, but it's skidding almost seemingly on every shot. And it was just the perfect surface these past two weeks for Barbara Krachikova. And to see her game thrive the way that it did and to see her confidence build with every passing match, 
it was exactly what the doctor ordered. To your point, watching her play, when I thought about you know the level she hit over the past two weeks, who else on the WTA tour has hit that this season? Halep at times, you know, particularly in Toronto. Um, did Rabakina hit that level at you know Wimbledon? Some scholars have argued it's tough to say that given the absences in the draw. I mean, Iga. Duh, like that's the other one you put on this list. But like, has Ongebur, who is leading the WTA Tour in most quarterfinal appearances, trails only Iga Swiatek in terms of total wins. Have I been as impressed with anything Owns has done, this, or more impressed, definitively more impressed with anything Owns has done this season than I am by the run Krachikva has gone on these past two weeks? The answer is no. And maybe that's an indictment on tier two on the at the WTA, which on the WTA, which will be an off season topic in itself. But like, I think it catapults her back into that tier two conversation of like, all right, if it's not Iga, who else is it going to be? And to your point, quarterfinalist this year in Australia when she was healthy, I think going into the 2023 Australian Open, Krachikova's got to be one of those tier two names. Yeah, top eight contender. Uh, definitely like that tier two has been a, um, a wild thing this year. How many <laughs> players have been world number two this year? Is Do you know the answer to this? Uh, I don't know the number, but I think we can start rattling off names and we... Conteve? Yep. Bedosa? Sakari? Yes. Yes, um, she has. Um, Jabur? Yep. Um... Let's see who else has a career high number two next to their name. <laughs> uh, as I'm going through, Krachikova was number two early on. Yes. Yeah, she was early in the season. It's not Kavita. That, that, I think that that's might your list. That's five. That might be yeah, it. But that, that's, your, that's a lot. That's a healthy number. <laughs> oh wait, Iga must have been number two at one point this season because Barty was number one. So that's, that's six, correct. right? Yes. Holy crap! <laughs> that is that's a stat. Yeah. Uh, although. Oh, she didn't go. Iga didn't go from from three to one. No, she was she was two. I'm quite certain she was two. Yeah, but you're right. Iga was number two at one point. Yeah, I, I think yeah, you're yeah. right. I agree with you. Also, that feels like the sort of stat I should know what their Twitter account is. I retweet them all the time. You know the orange one with the nice graphics always. Opta that feels ace. Like, yeah, that feels like an opta ace graphic. Can we get the opta ace graphic, please, for how many women have been number two this year? Tennis Channel has uh, that graphic somewhere. <laughs> okay. Good to you know. can ask for it. Chisenhauser? Uh, I'll ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, tier two. Uh, Krejcikova, didn't it feel like even last year, though, she was being... Okay. Do you think Krejcikova is, an, is a real-life, legit, people-don't-talk-about-enough... <laughs> Great question. Her double success alone, yes, because like she's a Hall of Famer. Lock it in. Barbara Krachikova is going to the Hall of Fame. 26 years old, number one doubles player in the world, has finished the career bazooka slam on that side, and she has a singles title, and she's been world number two. She's going into the Hall of Fame. Right. I think so. This gets me into my next question. I'm glad you asked this because my question was amongst the Krachikova peer group, who do you like the most? And because you look at the range of players born 1995, 1996, obviously an age group I have studied quite frequently over the course of the past few seasons. Jabur's a little older, but I'm going to melt her in that group. Jabur, yep. Conteve, Sakari. 
know, if you want to throw Kasakina, Kudermatova, um, maybe even Caroline Garcia amongst that group, fine. Madison Keys, technically that age as well. Obviously, Krachikov has got the slam singles title. So superficial fans, hardcore fans, whomever the fans are going to be, career accomplishments, she's number one above them. But as you look out towards the next five seasons, like, I know I listed a lot of names at you. I apologize for that fact. Are there any of them you feel definitively better than Krachikova about coming out of this year? And again, part of that's an indictment on the seasons they've had. I believe Juan Ignacio. Sorry if I butchered that name. No, <laughs> I just kind of sang Yeah, no, it. you got it. You okay, got good. It. My guy. Um, and shout out Ega Nation. They're too kind to us here at the mini break. Like... He put out a poll, Bedosa, Sakari, Conteve, Krachikova, who's had the better year. And it was a relevant thought to put out there. Now, it's very recency-biased answers, of course, but, like, it's not absurd to say, like, with this two-week run, like, yeah, I'll take Krachikova's season over the rest because at least she has that to fall back on. Yeah, it's not absurd. I Look, Jabir, Jabir's had the best season, I think. Was she an option yeah. there? She was not an option, but the two oh, slam okay. finals, she has to be the best. Yeah, ever. yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Um, well, or Pagula, like throw Pagula in there. Pagula She's got like a million there. quarterfinals at high level events. She's at least been in the mix everywhere, even if she hasn't gotten really over the finish line anywhere. And it's like, I love Jessica Pagula, but is that the litmus? Like, she's tier three. She can't be tier two, can she? Agreed. She can't be. No, she's not yeah. threatening enough exactly. um, to, to the top players at the end of tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the better, like, I think the best question is who is going to have, who should, who's going to have who the best 2023? Let's just say it. Who can beat Iga is really the question. And at least Krachikova was like, I can do that. But sorry, who's going to have the better 2023 is also a great question. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the, the best question there? Yeah. Um, not, look, I... I I'm down. I'm down on Contivate and Sakari at the moment. Contivate, it's it's more about yeah. Part of it's mental. Part of it is just shot tolerance. Part of it is just being able to fight balls off out of your strike zone, and and play in, you know, with wind. Is she the um, female Rublev? Yes. Well, except for Rublev does better at the majors, but like that's yeah. true, but. But yeah, like what are Contivate's best months? Yeah, yeah, February. Amen. Well said. Fe- full circle. February and October players. That's good. Can um, we start? We're going to make that here today. There are February and October players. And you know what? This offseason will make our list. Can we just label every, can we give every player a month? Yeah. You know what? Sapalanka's uh, three days in February, six days in March. 12 days in May and June where she's like, I'm going to go do well at these slams, then disappears till September. Um, I like this. Let's start labeling off sections of the month. It's like, oh, it's right. March 1st. It's Coco Golf time. <laughs> like, how is Berrettini not a June player? Like, explain to me how he's not a June player. You can't. I can't. That's a, that's a great <laughs> argument. <laughs> yeah, stop the show. That's good. Um, all right, but it did distract me from what I was trying to say. About Annette Conteve, the lack of oh, yeah. the okay. ball tolerance. Sakari, look, Sakari, the the mental roadblocks, the confidence issues um, are, I, I hate that those exist. I would love to wish those away, uh, but they've existed for a long time. Um, Kudermatova, 
I'm super intrigued by, and I'm not really sure. Like she's had an awesome year. I'm I'm not sure. It's almost like a why not her th- for me when I watch her. So sure. I have a lot of intrigue there, but she's done less. She obviously hasn't done what Kritchikova has done. Kasakina has that enormous second serve issue, yeah. and I mean serving in general. Better serve Kas- right now, me or her? <laughs> it's debatable. <laughs> it's uh, it, which isn't great. So I would say it's between for me it's between Krejcikova and Kudermetova. Krejcikova has shown a lot more, so it's Krejcikova. I wa- I'm not going to do a Belinda Bencic tangent here, but I'm going to do a full off season pod on Bencic because she's one of my. It's time for her to pop, and like is she, outside of the majors, she's had the best year of her career, and she has weapons that are non negotiable. And like to your point, Kudermetova has non-negotiables. That serve, that first strike, non-negotiable. It's going to keep Kudermatova in every match that she plays. <sighs> I don't know if I can say that about Kontaveit and Sakari. Like, they're going to stick around because they're pretty good at everything, but, like, no non-negotiables. Like, and, and that's an issue. And so... Bedosa too, right? Yeah, Bedosa What's, what's well, the absolutely. weapon that Bedosa can just rely on? Great it's traps. <laughs> <laughs> It's not it's not there. Like sometimes she serves tremendously well. Sometimes it seems average. She's not overwhelming offensively. She's not overwhelmingly consistent either. Yeah. She's a very good all around player Pagula and when falls things into are this working. As well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Sabalenka, that's why we always have this conversation about Sabalenka, because we saw the US Open semifinals. Like, well, wait a second. Your serve might be the non-negotiable of all non-negotiables, and you're just firepower from the baseline. It's like even Iga can struggle with that sort of firepower. And with that in mind, that brings me to Iga, which is where I want to end this Ostrova conversation. She loses her first final of the season. That said, do you have any concern about Iga Shviantek moving forward? Because <laughs> I love Iga Nation. You guys know I love you. Anytime you see a tweet uh, that's a, that offends you about Iga, here's what I would say to you, Iga Nation. As I like to think one of the members of the crew who believes in her upside, who got in a lot of trouble for comparing a 21-year-old Iga Shviantek to Serena Williams and still regret, still feel the after effects of that tweet <laughs> to today, uh, never tweet while podcasting, folks. Just don't take the bait. Like, just ignore it. I think anyone who is anyone whose opinion you should respect about tennis – knows how f-ing good Iga Shviantek is. And it's like, that's why it's like, you don't need to take the bait. Like, I get you got to defend your girl. And sometimes some of the storylines are ludicrous. Don't take that person seriously. Like, if there, if you see a ludicrous tweet, that person's done because you now know their opinion is not serious. Like, I really, yeah, the forehand against an elite serve, it's going to break down. Everyone's forehand's going to break down against an elite serve. I got no issues for Iga move. Like I, I have no change in my opinion after this match. Yeah, me either. Sometimes you lose tennis matches to really good players yeah. <laughs> on their home <laughs> soil. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, are we I'm done with the topic? To... Is that it? Is that all we need? Sixty Almost. wins, Look, first time since Wozniacki seventeen. Here's what. This is another thing I, I really credit Krejcikova. So most of Iga's losses fit into two buckets. Either someone viciously 
attacked like i don't want to say that iga's second serve is a sitting duck because it's not but either a, a very powerful and talented player viciously demolished every sviantic second serve danielle collins australian open where it wasn't as though iga served yeah. bad it's just like collins was like see ball hit ball yep ostapenko yes um Samsonova in that close three set match where she just went after it on the second serve i think yeah. that was stuttgart and- that was Stuttgart. Yep, almost yeah. almost won there. And then I will add uh, Garcia, who's been the ultimate yeah, sure, sure. second serve attacker, because yeah. uh, w- she's standing on the it's service a great line. Example, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so so that's been most of her losses. Uh, then there's, I guess, another version where there is that crisis of confidence on the forehand, which is what happened against Cornet. Uh, I think what happened against Haddad Maya in in Toronto to a certain extent. Those are kind of the the uglier losses, I would say, but they've there've there have only been a few of them. I don't know that that Krejcikova of a match falls into either bucket. I agree. I think this was just like someone outplayed her, and yeah, I don't mean. Would, and, and by the way, that is a credit to Krejcikova, not a slight on Sviantek. Yeah, no, I I think it might be. So okay, is it the most impressive win over Iga of the season? No, it it sure as heck wasn't Cornet. It was Collins. It was Collins at the Daniel Australian Collins Open. was here's so the, here's good. Here's the problem with that answer. It was laughable. Here's, here's the problem with that answer. Ego wasn't in yet. hindsight. In hindsight, it's one thing. Back then, we didn't know it's that true. Ego was going to be great on hard courts this year. We didn't yeah, know but that. I just have the, these memories of Collins watching the replay and being like, "No fucking way is she going to keep this up." Like. It was just like see ball, hit ball, big. And it's just like a stark reminder that Collins is one hell of a competitor. And that's you need that edge to beat Iga, to your point. But you're right. Iga wasn't Iga then. She's Iga now. And Krachikova played extraordinary throughout the course of the match. Again, to no fault of Iga, she didn't lose the match. Krachikova won it. And so... Yes, I would agree. This is the most because I th- the Cornet match means nothing to me. I'm just like that was a grass court match. She's played like 12 of them so far in her career. <laughs> Junior Wimbledon champion. Like grass court results, I just can't take them seriously until maybe next season, maybe 2024, when it's like, all right, now everyone actually has repetitions under their belt. Um, because again, no grass court in 2020. Given how young this tour is, the changing faces, I think that matters more than perhaps we discuss. People don't talk about it enough. Um, yeah, I have no concerns. Like, I, I just, like, you're right. If anything, this bolsters the case of, like, all right, Krachikova has to be in Tier 2 because she showed us that. Well, what would you work on if you could, uh, if you if this was 2K, NBA 2K, <laughs> and you had some, some points to work with and you could adjust uh, her attributes, where would, would you go? I would say, Iga... For the next year, you're not allowed to hit a slice backhand. Because <laughs> don't waste it. If you get a backhand side, go after it. No. Did you hear they're not letting her hit drop shots? Oh, I like that play. That's so I'm in the same that's framework that's a little more specific, but yes, I just don't waste any movements out on court. You don't need to. Um Look, I would say just keep hitting to my forehand return. The better that forehand return, I already break over fifty percent of the time and I think it's just the forehand return is like the one place where maybe she offers a free point every third service game. And it's just like, all right, we clean that up. Now I might break 60% of the time. And then, yes, obviously, 
I, I didn't include this because every player works on their serve through every stage of their careers. Every 21-year-old in the world needs to improve their second serve. Iga is not immune to that. So yeah, just bucket of serves, bucket of returns. We're doing that 30 minutes every day in the offseason. It's Very hard simple. to ar- it's hard to argue with with serve return. Yeah, because uh, nobody really wins rallies against her on a consistent basis. Yeah, exactly. Basis. It's like, well, it's not the ground strokes, and you're a good volleyer, and you like to hit the swinging volley, which is a really all fun right wrinkle. volleyer, all right volleyer. Who knows where to go, what to do? If it's a binary system, doesn't it's one force or zero. it, right? I mean, she'd rather like I don't think she she doesn't put herself in a position where she has to hit difficult volleys. Yeah, so it's fair, fair. Point. So That's you know, count. I I guess I give her a one. Yeah, uh, but I mean. I think the the auxiliary area that she can work on is just uh, let's get comfortable with some of the the touch and the feel stuff. Like let's let's play some mini tennis. Yeah. Uh, let's <laughs> let's develop a drop shot. Uh, that that'd be huge. She should work on the drop shot, and that's what that's what they said. Like we need you to actually know how to hit a drop shot, and then you can hit drop shots. Just but the until con- then. The, sorry, the concept of going up to Iga and being like, let's work on mini tennis today. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I'm world number one. Like, absolutely, you want me to do what? <laughs> That's one of the things that no, you're uh, right. when, when Riley stopping. Opelka, when Riley Opelka was commentating on Tennis Channel, when Tiafo was playing Labor Cup, and uh, there were some of these cat and mouse rallies that Tiafo was winning. Riley was like, yeah, man, like, Francis is amazing at this kind of thing. And... You know, you can't beat him in mini tennis. Like, he kicks everybody's in mini tennis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, like, you do it at the end of practice, you play around a little bit, but, like, these situations do arise in a match. Yeah, no, completely fair. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> All right, Iga, we're going to do 30 minutes of serves and returns. We're going to follow it up with mini tennis. Um, <laughs> and then... Then the last 15 minutes are yours. Um, all right. With that said, rapid fire here down the home stretch. I got three more questions for you. I suppose the last of which won't be the most rapid. The highest, you know, coming off of the Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo final, and we're not going to break it down at length here because we talk so much about the Americans. Go watch the highlights for yourself. It was a fantastic match that ultimately now has Taylor Fritz inside the top 10 of the ATP rankings. We talked about how there were nine top 50 Americans, but no top 10 guys. Well, we have that in Taylor Fritz. Quick tangent. Do you think Andre Rublev would trade his season for Taylor Fritz's? Fritz has had the better season. Wow, that's a take. The points race would disagree, and yet I agree with you. Like, I, I think if you told Rublev yeah. everything else, you get the Indian Wells title. He'd be like, yeah. no. He'd be like, I'll take I, it. I yeah, agree. I, I agree. mean, yeah. um, all right. Rapid fire number one. The highest ranked American one year, one year from today, because we've seen a lot of good American tennis over the course of the past yeah. few months. And, and you didn't know that I talked about this at the end of Monday Match Analysis this week. This exact question? Yeah. Uh, you question. know, I did not listen to Monday Match Analysis today. It is on my running playlist, let me be clear. So I will get to it eventually, but I have not yet listened. Saving that one for myself. Hey, credit credit to you. I mean, good <laughs> I'm question. I'm the only one who hasn't listened yet. Yeah, <laughs> good question. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think right now, and this is a credit to Francis Tiafo, because at the beginning of the year, I didn't think this was the case. I think that question is between now him and Taylor. Uh, I think it's between the Tokyo finalists because uh, Riley's had health issues and I I just can't, I don't think Tommy Paul is quite at their level. 
um, although he's shown you know really positive signs this year. It doesn't look like uh, the the young fellas, Korda, Brooksby, Nakashima. It doesn't look like they're going to be there in 2023. I agree with you on the Ben Shelton hype. I'm with you on the Ben Shelton hype, but that sounds like a 2024 thing to me. Okay, can I give you one? Oh, sorry, carry on, carry on. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just think, look, you go ahead. Right now, I'm I'm just saying, I'll leave it at this for now, and then we'll narrow it down. I think it's between Francis and Taylor. So you make a very compelling case. I agree those are the two guys in the pole position. Let's not forget how good Tommy Paul's been since the start of the grass court season. Multiple quarterfinals, fourth round U.S. Open, and, you know, again, who the losses are to. He loses to Rude in a fantastic five-set match. Rude goes on to make the final. He loses to Kyrgios at Wimbledon. Kyrgios goes on to make the final. He has just, you know, again, on paper, Tommy's almost a little bit of a bridge between Francis and Taylor. He can do a lot of the fluid improvisational things of Francis, maybe not to the extent that Francis can, but he does it with the fluidity and the, I don't want, the traditional ground strokes, the polish of the Taylor Fritz game as well. Now, it's not quite as good as either, but it is that bridge in between. I think he's someone you have to say in this conversation, obviously the Corda upside, he's going to have a massive year. The year he's healthy from start to finish is the year he has a massive season. But let me just give you one Brandon Nakashima number. Well, I guess a couple. <laughs> Nakashima, 24-11 and 11 since the start of the French Open. That's obviously awesome. Here's the big number. He's holding 88.2% of the time over that stretch since the start of the French Open. That number That's would, wild. Rank fifth, would rank fifth amongst top 50 players. Of course, he's now inside the top 50. Against players ranked outside the top 50, 21-2 and two during this stretch of time, he's holding 92.4% of the time. And here's the thing. That matches up with what my eyes are seeing. I don't know how much of his San Diego run you got to watch or just in general over the past couple of months. He hits all of his spots, and he hits them at 115, 120 on the radar gun, and he follows everything up extraordinarily well. I don't think there's a deficiency in Brandon's game. I think he's got the Gilgross professional body and that he's more muscular than you would expect, especially for a tennis player where you're just like, all right, this guy's an athlete. Um all signs seem to indicate that Brandon is on a flying upwards trajectory. Good argument. Um, I guess, like, I try to hold off. So much for rapid fire. Sorry, go yeah. on. My, no, I, I guess I just try to hold me. off making definitive opinions on players. Yeah. I just, I like to see them play the best. Okay. And I feel like, and I'm going to, let's check that. I don't think I've seen Nakashima in those positions. No, so first uh, top 20 opponents here this year, Nakashima 2-7 and seven overall. So it's a very fair yeah. argument to make. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm holding out for. I see that, though, with the holding serve. I've always been a little bit mystified by it. I, I think Amen. It, it's kind of like, why don't you hold less and break more? <laughs> You're you're right. You're like your ground strokes are so clean, and yet yeah. your break percentage is like twenty. <laughs> like it's barely twenty percent. Makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Why he serve bots? It's yeah. like why are you? Why are your serve botting numbers a thing? Um, yeah, is he Brandon Nakashima serve bot? Put it on a poll. 
Twitter poll. We'll throw yeah. that out there. The numbers would indicate as much. He's the wild card right now because he's just red hot. Um, yeah. <sighs> Look, my answer is Fritz. I got to say that. All my right. answer to the question is Fritz. I, it's just too – his level right now off the ground and on serve is too high and too repeatable and – consistent polished i think is a great word for taylor fritz he's so polished that uh i'm just very confident that he's going to be between the sixth and ninth best player in the world in 2023 (laughs) that's a all right you've been listening to some stephen a smith i see are you Um, confident are you confident first of all do you agree with that and then can you really say that any american man has a better outlook than being the sixth through ninth best player in the world. So no to part B, six through nine is a good number. I just, it's a lot of points to defend. Like Indian Wells title, now the 500 title. He hasn't had like massive 250 runs, right? Like you don't talk about Taylor in the top 10 total quarterfinals. One Eastbourne, one Eastbourne. Yeah, Eastbourne as well. That's a good point. I just feel like there's more low-hanging fruit for Francis and Tommy in terms of just making easy progression versus where if Taylor goes from 8 to 12, I don't think that means he had a worse season. I just think maybe instead of winning Indian Wells, he makes the quarterfinals. Maybe instead of winning a 500, he makes the semifinals. It's just like it's really hard with all these guys coming up because I think we both think Sinner's going to end next year in one of those top eight spots, right? And it's just like he takes one of them. A healthy Zverev probably takes one of them back as well as earn that benefit of the doubt, or maybe he hasn't. And that's a question for us to ponder this offseason. I, I would go Fritz, too. You know my Cordesoff spot. I love him 6'5", fluid, can hit backhands. <laughs> um, Mm, I'll go. F- mm, I can't agree with you. I'll take Francis. I'll take Francis because I really just love Francis three out of five sets. I think more than anything else. I just think physically, you can maybe some players can match him. No one exceeds him in best of five sets, except for maybe Elkaraz, who's just a monster. Do you know what one of the things I I like Francis over over Taylor in besides for the obvious stuff like the volleys variety forehand. Um, <laughs> uh not quite put him in a packed arthur ash night session yes. against against nadal or Djokovic. Or put him put him on rod uh, rod laver put him on yeah. suzanne longland put him on any of these courts and he thrives and i think he's gonna get those courts moving forward yeah he really does he he elevates fritz i think has worked very hard and i think he stays the same like, I don't think he shrinks, but I don't think he just becomes, like, way better uh, like Francis does. It's a special thing that Tiafo has. Yeah, very well said. All right, moving on. More interesting chase for the year-end championship, ATP or WTA? WTA, technically. Um, the weird thing, though, is the schedule feels incomplete. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's my answer to the question. It's it should be WTA, but where's our big WTA 1000 event where we can kind of? Oh right, they did make that. Yeah, event. right. Didn't they just that add is it? it? 
That no, is it. no, yeah. which is a fair point. It hasn't been very well broadcast. Right. I would also say San Diego and Ostrov. So I'm going to answer my own question and cut you off because welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. The race to Fort Worth is more interesting. The action in Turin will be far better. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it does. It absolutely does. I mean, only two players have qualified on the women's side. Five players have qualified for the men. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, injuries on the men's side. It's like now you have Sinner and Zverev out, and it's like, all right, uh, that kind of puts a, a a little bit of a dampener on on the race itself. Uh, obviously, you have Halep out for the on the women's side. Um, but it just feels like Madison Keys at number 12, it's San Diego. She still has a shot. Feels a little bit more fun than what we have going on the men's side right now. Two drinks in me, I'll make a case for Alexandrova. Like, I agree with you. Or like Sam Snova <laughs> would be the more interesting player in the final field. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, and you know, they don't have the the Djokovic exception for the men's side now. He might ultimately end up fine and not need that exception, but they don't have that for the women. So Rabakina probably not going to get in, which yeah. that's kind of sucks as well. No, I mean, well said. Like, again, I think the race is more exciting on the women's side. You know, on the men's side. I'm not that excited. You know, some of these players don't excite me that much in terms of well, like. It's like can... Sakari should be disqualified right now. From It's like you can't <laughs> do what you've done the past two months and get into the. I mean, it's a full year award. So, of course, you can. Yeah. But like, again, quality control. Come on now. Let's rig things. David Stern would do it for the NBA. So, you know, Steve Simon can do it for the WTA. I want to see Benchich in. Mm-hmm. I'm talking just me just too. who can win. Yeah. Right, Samsonova. Uh, like Put Samsonova in. She's yeah. winning the event. And, and let's be clear: like we're not saying we like these players. We're not fans of these players. We're saying these are players who can win Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And just by just by going off of that, I would want to see Benchich in. Uh, I would want to see Samsonova in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would want to see. And this won't happen. I would want to see Krejcikova in. Yeah, I mean, especially with how well she's played down the season's home stretch. Let me ask you this. Over under four and a half times, Andre Rublev will go one and two at the year-end finals in his career. Because <laughs> that just feels like his future. That's just what he's been for, I know, you're since just like, 2020. You're like, you look at the group play, you're like, all right, Rublev one and two. Um, all right, who's he beating? You're just like, because he's going to beat one of you. Um, look, he's the ultimate, he's been the ultimate five through eight guy. No one wins that third rubber of group play harder than Andre Rublev. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Rublev slander today. I like Rublev's game. Me too. And I've I've always, I've defended him at at many corners, but at a certain point you stop making progress and then it starts to get negative. Yeah. Fair enough. Even though, even though it shouldn't, right? Because like, heck, I'd love to be a five through eight guy. Everybody would love, uh, uh, about 350 plus players would like love to be a five through eight guy. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I well said. Well, but said. he's not a one through five guy. Yeah, I at least not yet. I need to see something else if he's going to get to that step. You know, I'm just gonna say it. This has been our best crack rackets podcast of the year, and I really don't <laughs> want to screw things up with these last five minutes. But it wouldn't be a CR show if we didn't. So my final question for you, and I'm even gonna sit back and enjoy the show here. 
Elisa Mertens. Floor is yours. Like I just because <laughs> we were there for the for the round of sixteen, for the quarterfinals, semifinals, whatever the two matches were consecutively, where she was so bad. Like I, I'm this isn't hyperbole. It got to a point where I, Alex Gruskin, was like, I don't want to watch this tennis anymore. Like this is just <laughs> atrocious. And you were on the call for that final three set match. Was it? Uchijima or Uchijima, I forget who she played yeah. in the first one where but, it was just like stab me in the eye. Despina um, Papa Mikhail. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Papa Mikhail, our girl, <laughs> um, who we love so dearly. Gave us a lot of joy last week. Um, I mean, it's just like, you know, the wins above replacement. Should we do wins above Mertens, like moving forward, where it's kind of like, I mean, because again, she's just like, she's top 35. She's just going to be seated. I know the third round win streak was snapped, but you know she's going to get a couple of wins, three sets. It might be a little ugly. She's going to get there. And then you watch her match in the final against Alizé Cornet. And I was like, is this the best player on the WTA right now? <laughs> like, she just couldn't miss. I don't know, Gail. The floor is yours. Look, first of all, she needed this week because her trajectory for a 26-year-old was super weird. Like, mm-hmm. she really did dive this year. And it was strange to see and because we're talking the last five years, ever since 2017, uh, she's at least won a title or the one year that she didn't win a title, 2020, shortened 2020. She made two finals and actually played really well that year. Um, and then this year, she hadn't been past a quarterfinal and both of her quarterfinals were kind of insignificant. So it was kind of like, what's going on here? Uh, she was down to 42 in the world. And now she's, and then she goes up against, you know, two qualifiers back to back, Papa Mikhail and Uchijima, and plays, you know, slogs. Um, and in both matches, though, the thing is, she basically oscillated from feeling completely uncomfortable on the forehand side, being aggressive whatsoever, to just being like, Ugh, this sucks. I suck. I'm just going to crush the ball <laughs> and trust myself. And when she played that brand of tennis where she's actually flattening out on her forehand, her forehand is not good when she tries to put spin on it. Like she just, it's a flat stroke. Sometimes she tries to hit it heavy and spinny, and it just goes completely off the rails when she does that. The backhand is really solid, but at the end of the day, like Mertens just needs to be confident in herself and go after the tennis ball. And when she does, she doesn't normally miss. She doesn't, she's not the kind of player who is missing aggressively. She's missing passively. And when she actually trusts herself, she keeps the ball in the court. So this is a stupid follow-up question. Shout out Bill Simmons for this construct. Is she a good, bad player or a bad, good player? Like when you look at Elisa Burns, do you think, oh, that's a good player who occasionally will play bad or that's a bad player who just like can steal a lot of good wins? I think she's a good, bad player. I think you're right. I agree where it's like it's just on the framework of like she just – it gets grimy, but it works. Yeah, it, it, she's capable of a lot, but it just seems like 
she plays a brand of like grinded out tennis where it's like, why are you doing this? You're not that good when you do this. <laughs> yeah. There's no connective thread from like point to point of like, I was accomplishing this. So I'm going to continue to try and attack that. And it's just like, no, nah, I'm going to go forehand line here. I'm going to go elevated backhand. Maybe I'll mix in a drop shot. I just like, I don't get it. <laughs> I just like, I can't see it. Yeah, and and talk about a player who is who has been so good in doubles so consistently yeah. and doesn't isn't really using it on the singles court very often. Like she can definitely come in more than she does and when she does come in, she she looks good. She takes the ball out of the air. Her overhead is good. Um but again, like I just think there's grinder Mertens and then there's you know, aggressive baseliner flat ball hitter Mertens and the latter is so much better than the former mm -hmm. no well said bonus one for you final one me using the word adjudicate on the broadcast overcompensation or just damn good broadcasting context a line judge and a player got in a spat and they were going to properly adjudicate whatever happened Compensating. <laughs> I, I won't say which producer, but he goes in my ear and he goes, adjudication, huh? And I was like, I was like, you know, that and chutzpah were my two words of the week. Uh, chutzpah got I'm a good all laugh. for chutzpah. I'm all yeah. for chutzpah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Try that again. Chutzpah. Chutzpah. I know I didn't quite hit it hard enough. Yeah. Chutzpah. For a gross, your chutzpah is struggling. Yeah. Um, chutzpah. Yeah, that's better. That's a little. Yeah. You know who would Raymond? Raymond Gross has a lot of chutzpah. Let me tell you, that. that's a man who just defines chutzpah. Um, all right. With all of that said, I'm going to get sentimental for two seconds. I have been in Los Angeles for 15 days now, 16 days, and there are a lot of people who I need to thank. I've thanked the Rothmans repeatedly here on this show. I would be remiss if I did not thank Michael Haston. No, if I did not thank you, Gil Gross, who of course. Has tolerated all of my nonsense, who has times has acted as the greatest shuttle service a man can ask for, <laughs> who's just, again, shown me the ropes in TC Studio. I'm immensely grateful for your tolerance of all of my nonsense. And dare I say, for a man who is a couple years uh, younger than I am, it's nice to have a peer to look up to. And I'm immensely grateful uh, for all you've done here over these 15 days. So I will leave the last word to you. Anything you need to plug? Uh, no, but I appreciate it, and I genuinely love having you around um, here in LA. I, you know, I am uh, I'm a New York kid. <laughs> Most of my connections are in New York. It is fantastic uh, to to have a friend in LA when when you come along, and um, it's also been amazing to to see you work and how much you love it, how much energy <laughs> you bring to it. You are yourself on air, which is the greatest thing that you can be and usually takes people a, a long time to figure out. Um, so all good and looking forward to many more. Yeah, it's going to be a pleasure. Will you and the Rothmans be getting dinner without me? Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm so jealous. I'm like, damn it. Like, they're going to be going out. Gil's going to be like, hey, I found a new pie place. You want to come? And they're going to be like, in. Um, and so <laughs> it's going to be delightful. But Gil Gross, 
host of Monday Match Analysis, host of Three Attendance Show. Always a pleasure to get the chance to chat with him. Shout out, as always, to super producer Danny Westoff for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all this content possible, as well as the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. With that said, it is a mini-break episode, Gil. So, for the fantastic Gil Gross, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell the people? Oh, no. That's the break. <laughs> there it is. He's still got it. Oh, thank you as always, my friend. I'll see you tomorrow. See ya.